Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. <laughs> that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not... What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Richard Milhouse Nixon was the 37th president of the United States, serving from 1969 to 1974 when he became the only president to resign from office. My fellow Americans, I come before you tonight as a candidate for the vice presidency. Just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Nixon's the one. My name is Dan Carlin. I am a journalist, a former radio talk show host and television news reporter who is now a podcaster. And I do two podcasts, one on history and one on politics and current events. America waited out World War II's last tense hours. At the White House, President Truman, State Secretary Burns, and Cordell Hall stood by for the momentous surrender message from the Japanese. The United States was fundamentally transformed after the Second World War. Really, the United States had become, for the first time in its history, a global international power allied with other global international powers in a way that was not just unlike any previous time in American history, but was the exact opposite of what the people who founded the United States wanted. They had wanted no entangling alliances. They had wanted to stay out of the conflicts and affairs and disagreements of places like Europe. Pearl Harbor dragged the United States into the affairs of the world to a degree that 
that had never happened before. May of 1945 saw the lights go on again. Once more, the nation's capital was blazing in all its glory. Germany had surrendered. The war in Europe was over. There was still a war to be fought to a finish in the Pacific. But that couldn't dim the celebration that marked the fall of Hitler and the end of his dreams of world conquest. Three months later, crowds gather in front of the White House, awaiting the announcement of Japan's surrender from President Harry S. Truman. It took two atomic bombs to bring Japan to her knees. But now Pearl Harbor was avenged, and the news triggered the greatest celebration the nation has ever known. When Harry Truman assumes the presidency upon Roosevelt's death in office, he's a guy who's only been vice president for a very short period of time. He was famously quoted as saying that he hadn't been told very much about what was going on by Roosevelt. And he now is governing a country that is transformed from the one that the man he took over from first found when he got into office. When the Second World War ended, the United States attempted to, as best it could, return to the way things had been before the Second World War, only to find out very quickly that it wasn't going to be able to do that, and that it may have inherited out of the ashes of that war another major world entity that would compete with it and challenge it. This would be the Soviet Union, and it would create what's known in American history as a byproduct of that, something called the Second Red Scare, a very anti-communist, almost frenzied period in American history that would be, shall we say, given an exclamation point when the Korean War begins in 1950, creating a major challenge for President Harry Truman. Will there be peace or war? The fateful question posed by Warren Austin, head of the United States delegation to the UN, set the mood of the world at the century's halfway mark. The seating of nationalist China's delegate on the Security Council precipitated a clash between the free nations and the Soviet bloc, which only ended with the abrupt departure of Jacob Malik, head of the Red Delegation, a blunder they were to regret when the invasion of South Korea by North Korean Reds came up for consideration by the Council. In the absence of Soviet obstruction, the Security Council voted overwhelmingly in favor of armed intervention. In 1950, men throughout the world learned to look on the brutal face of communism. Berlin, powder keg of Europe, saw a mass demonstration of indoctrinated young Germans on May Day. France was also beset by communist-inspired strife. Red Union members adopted violent methods to prevent the unloading of Marshall Plan aid. But far more sinister to Americans was home front communism. Union Square in New York was the backdrop for these scenes of red violence. From their ranks will come the saboteurs, spies, and subversives. It's funny because to modern people, it's difficult to explain why anybody would be scared to the degree that our country, the United States, was of communism and the Soviet Union and all these things. There had been a history of fear of Bolshevik, as it was called before this period, activity when the Soviet Union first appeared on the scene in 1917. Anarchists and communists and those people had been rounded up during the turn of the last century. And then that whole period kind of died down after the First World War and 1919, 1920 ended. There were labor strikes and other things that were seen by some as Bolshevik communist agitation. The Second World War saw the United States, though, as erstwhile allies of the Soviet Union. When the war ended, it was almost 
almost as though some of those dormant anti-communist feelings had been unleashed again, and the combination of a Soviet Union that seemed aggressive, and the knowledge that more and more people in high-level positions of government were actually, if not communists, then leaning in that direction, and some who were actively spying for the Soviet Union gave this feeling that there was an enemy within, maybe even up to the highest ranks of the United States government. In fact, one of the major people who negotiated the famous Bretton Woods financial agreements between the United States and Great Britain, among other people, turned out to be perhaps feeding the Soviet Union information. This led to a real paranoia that not only was it possible that there was agitation from below in the American system on the part of the communists, but maybe like they had penetrated into all of the most important, most secret, most sensitive areas of U.S. government. Because of this, the government began investigating people, both in high-level positions and in other sensitive positions, trying to determine if there were communists in our midst. And what ended up happening was it started to play into the traditional political dynamic. It became a tool for politicians to use, smear your opponents, to suggest innuendos that they might be either in league with or in sympathy with or maybe not as tough on communists as they should be in an anti-communist era. Richard Nixon came up and began his political career in an era where anti-communism was one of the benchmarks of political opportunism in the country. It was one of the main things a politician would have in his toolbox to use against opponents and to bolster their own credentials as to why they deserved to be given the reins of public power. And when Nixon first arrived on the scene is the era when Joseph McCarthy and the House on Americans activities is doing its investigative work. And Nixon was involved very early on in trying to ferret out and root out a supposed communist infiltration of U.S. government and U.S. installations. I am holding in my hand a microfilm, a very highly confidential secret State Department document. These documents were fed out of the State Department over 10 years ago by communists who were employees of that department and who were interested in seeing if these documents were sent to the Soviet Union, where the interests of the Soviet Union happened to be in conflict with those of the United States. Let's put ourselves back in the time. I'm not sure Nixon was considered rabid anti-communist. He really fit the tenor of the times. McCarthy was only a little bit rabid anti-communist by the tenor of the times, so that should give you an idea what the tenor of the times was. Richard Nixon was playing to the popular feeling of the people. In other words, Nixon was the kind of guy, as a politician, who wouldn't pick something like that if it wasn't usable. The population rewarded politicians who appeared to be really anti-communist and punished those who could be tarred and feathered as being soft on communism. So what Richard Nixon was doing is essentially defining himself in a political sense. He was a tough on communism, no nonsense, Americans American. And during that time period, that played really well with the electorate. My recollection was that in this now famous two and a quarter page document, there were about 35 names listed. This is pretty serious. Have we had anything as serious as this so far? Well, yes, I think we've got something much more serious right now. 
Right, well, I'm talking about up yes, to yes. prior to this hearing. May, may, I answer, may I answer that question, Mr. Chairman? Uh, I think we've got a much more serious situation now in communist infiltration of the CIA. Disturbs me beyond words. Well, we haven't. The members of the committee have not been advised, and I do think that... Oh, yes, they have. Oh, yes, they have. I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. For president, hang out the banner, beat the drum. We'll take Ike to Washington. D. Eisenhower takes his campaign into Texas, climaxing it with speeches at Fort Worth and Dallas. The Republican presidential candidate's whirlwind tour carries him 12,000 miles in 16 days. General Eisenhower was pursued by both political parties. He was one of those people that was seen as a shoe-in for the White House. And one of the reasons that the Republicans were able to convince Eisenhower to run on their ticket was that the Democrats had been in office for a long time. I and mean, when you realize you have the three and one quarter terms of Franklin Roosevelt, followed by Truman finishing out Roosevelt's term and then winning an election in his own right, there was a real feeling in the country at that time that maybe it was time to give the other party a chance. Eisenhower decides to run as a Republican, although truthfully, Eisenhower could have run as a Democrat too. I mean, if you look at the way he governed, had he chosen a different vice president, Eisenhower could have really been a nominee for either party. The Korean War was going on at the time, and Eisenhower had publicly promised, if he was elected, that he would go to Korea and do what he could to end the hostilities or figure out a way out of the situation. As a former leader, not just not just general, but leader of the American war effort, he was seen as uniquely qualified to do this. And so the American people, already tired of the Korean War and looking for some way out, felt that if you turn it over to the general, he'll know what to do. Now, the picking of Richard Nixon is a very classic case in American history of trying to pick somebody that will aid the political ticket in winning important states. Richard Nixon was a Californian, and back in the days when these rules used to apply much more than they do currently, the idea was if you put a California politician on the ticket with you, it's going to go a long way towards winning you California. It's often a Texas politician or a Southern politician that they look for. In this case, Nixon was supposed to deliver California, as they said. Uh, he was a very young man at the time, not even 40 years old. He wasn't so much seen as an up-and-comer, as a presidential hopeful, but certainly as someone who'd made a name for himself in the party, a staunch anti-communist, and somebody who could be almost a hatchet man if you needed somebody to get a little bit vicious in the political fight, because a guy like Eisenhower was famous for sort of standing above the fray and not getting his hands dirty and not saying mean or very political things about someone else. Richard Nixon was always, and I believe he actually said this about himself, a political man. And the idea that you could have him to do Eisenhower's dirty work seemed, at least to the Republican Party, to be a great pairing putting these two men together. Eisenhower never seemed all that enthusiastic about Nixon. It was the choice that was foisted on him, the party leaders. General Eisenhower awaits his running mate, Senator Nixon, at the Wheeling, West Virginia airport, following a week during which the vice presidential candidate's finances were under attack. My fellow Americans, I come before you tonight as a candidate for the vice presidency and as a man whose honesty 
and in integrity has been questioned. Now, the usual political thing to do when charges are made against you is to either ignore them or to deny them without giving detail. I believe we've had enough of that in the United States, particularly with the present administration in Washington, D.C. To me, the office of the vice presidency of the, the United Checker States... The Checker's speech is a wonderful office. example of how Nixon was punished for doing the sorts of things that would almost not even be noticed if they happened in the modern American political climate. Nixon had a fund that wealthy backers had created to sort of pay him back for political expenses. It was not illegal, but when it was exposed, it looked dirty. It looked like he was taking money, he was uh, accepting bribes. I mean, that's how it would look in the modern context. And Nixon had to, they would say today, get out in front of the story and explain to the American people that everything he did was above board. The only thing he took was this little dog named Checkers, and his daughter loved it, and he wasn't going to give it back. Uh, and it was one of these wonderful speeches that, for one of the very few times in Richard Nixon's political career, did a very good job of humanizing the man. If there was any weakness he had, part of it was a coldness and an inability sometimes to seem warm and to have that, you know, he, he's the opposite of a Reagan or a Bill Clinton with the inability to seem like he could feel someone's pain. And that checker speech helped turn Nixon into almost a regular guy for five minutes. And it may have been the most successful speech of his career. The battle for the presidency of the United States nears its climax and tension grows in the rival camps. At his headquarters, Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican candidate, makes his way onto the platform to the acclaim of his supporters as the news comes in from the 48 states that he's in the lead. Electric signs flash the news, Ike's in, and Bedlam breaks out amongst the Republican supporters as they hear of their landslide victory. Dwight Eisenhower becomes president by the greatest popular vote ever given a White House candidate. America has shown her confidence in Eisenhower. There was always a feeling that the vice presidency was one of those really meaningless jobs, that there really was nothing constitutional in terms of a role that was supposedly played. I mean, the vice president has a few roles in terms of breaking ties in the legislature, things like that. But by and large, the vice president is there in case the president dies or is incapacitated. Richard Nixon became one of the early vice presidents really tasked with something that was of value or important. You see that more often these days than you did back in the, well, say, 20s, 30s. I mean, I mentioned Harry Truman when he became president of the United States is famous for having said that he didn't even know about the existence of the atomic bomb until Roosevelt died. That shows you how out of the loop vice presidents could be. When Richard Nixon assumes the job, he's much more in touch with what's going on. And part of the reason might be because all of a sudden you had an existential threat hanging over the United States. The president was walking around with the equivalent of launch codes for nuclear weapons. I mean, the vice president had to be ready on a moment's notice to assume the job and literally just be able to walk in and take over. It was always assumed in the good old days that there would be a nice getting accustomed to the job period. 
there were actually fears during the Cold War that if the president died in office, that might be a wonderful time to launch a nuclear strike. And so keeping the vice president in the loop and able to take over the job at a moment's notice became a lot more important once the time window and the decision-making window shrunk to what it is in the modern world, really. The world moved a lot more slowly before the Second World War, and the vice president's job sort of reflected that. Well, Andy, I think it will be pretty generally agreed, as this 83rd Congress comes to an end, that it has produced more beneficial legislation than any Congress in recent history for the American people. And I want to personally express appreciation on behalf of uh, the administration and as far as corruption is concerned, I want to make this one point very clear. I worked for the government for nine months during 1942. Mrs. Nixon worked for the government in San Francisco while I was in service overseas. Eisenhower's health had been poor throughout certainly his second term. And the idea, again, that there might be a president who was incapacitated, which had happened before in American history. Woodrow Wilson had had a devastating stroke while in office. As a matter of fact, right after the First World War ended, while he was trying to get uh, and lobby the American legislature to pass some of his League of Nations ideas and some of the treaty ideas from the First World War, he was incapacitated by this terrible stroke. And it was, for the most part, covered up. And his wife actually ran the government sort of while he was in his sickbed. And I think that that sort of a situation was the worst nightmare of an America on a hair trigger alert. And the idea that someone like Eisenhower could have a stroke like Woodrow Wilson did, and Eisenhower turned out to be prone to strokes later in his life, and not have some sort of a direct ability to transfer power quickly certainly must have seemed an antiquated era from another age. Um, what happened with Nixon was something that was likely to happen anyway. It was an obvious problem. It had already surfaced in the American system in recent memory. And so the climate of the age, this feeling that you needed a bomb shelter in your backyard, you could wake up to the news that missiles were on the way or Soviet bombers were on the way and that war had broken out, lent a real sense of need and drama to everyone's life. And so having a situation where someone could step into the role of commander-in-chief as needed and have it be constitutional and spelled out simply seemed like another safeguard measure, the way having eventually, after this time period, a hotline between Washington and Moscow would seem as just a logical thing to have as a backup measure. If this competition is to do the best for both of our peoples and for people everywhere, there must be a free exchange of ideas. Uh, there are some instances where you may be ahead of us, for example, in the development of, your, of the thrust of your rockets for the investigation of outer space. There may be some instances, for example, color television, where we're ahead of you. But in order for both of us... We stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of the 1960s. The frontier of unknown opportunities and perils. Richard Nixon in 1960 
is kind of viewed by many as the heir apparent. This was what he viewed his vice presidential experience as providing for him. And when Eisenhower's second term ends, Richard Nixon appears to be the logical choice for a country moving into a new era. The worst of the Red Scare period had blown over. Joseph McCarthy had been discredited. There was still anti-communism levels that, that most Americans today couldn't relate to. But by the standards of the day, the fires had died down somewhat. And in 1960, when Richard Nixon is running for office, the tone shifts from communist infiltrators more to a question of military superiority. He will face a man in the 1960 presidential election who is so perfectly attuned to what the new technology is going to require for presidents, and he will be, Nixon himself will be so exposed by that same technology that he will often blame what happens in the 1960 presidential elections to the lightweight nature of the way politics was changing. Richard Nixon is a man who learned the political rules of the game in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. By 1960, He's about to be the first president who encounters a live presidential debate on television. And he has the misfortune of going up against perhaps the most powerful political figure in American history in terms of being a television-style celebrity. In 1960, Richard Nixon will run for the presidency against John F. Kennedy, who was the Democratic nominee. They will meet in a famous debate where Nixon will push things like the defense of the country. He will push his record as vice president under Eisenhower. He will talk about the Soviet threat, and he will win the most important debates, according to everyone who listens to those debates on radio. But for the people who were able to watch those debates on television, Richard Nixon, sweat on his upper lip, declining makeup before the television appearance, will be up against a person that looks like a movie star, who put makeup on and who had a tan, who had an easy humor to him and a manner of dealing with the media that showed a comfort and style that was totally foreign to the uptight and tense Nixon demeanor. He will become the first president to experience what can happen to you if you can't convey your warmth and your human tendencies via the modern medium of television. Senator, the vice president in his campaign has said that you are naive and at times immature. He has raised the question of leadership. On this issue, why do you think people should vote for you rather than the vice president? The vice president and I came to the Congress together in 1946. We both served in the Labor Committee. I've been there now for 14 years, the same period of time that he has. So that our experience in uh, government is comparable. Mr. Nixon, would you like to comment on that statement? I have no comment. John F. Kennedy will hit Nixon over things like a missile gap, which was the big issue uh, in the 1960 campaign, showing how, once again, defense with the Soviet Union was still the overriding issue. Civil rights are beginning to become important. Questions concerning poverty, the ideas, once again, of communism and how hard on communists you could be. 
an evolving situation in places like Cuba. There's the beginnings of stirrings of problem in what used to be called French Indochina. All of these things are important, but John F. Kennedy seems to be able to exude a feeling. If Richard Nixon has any downside as a politician, it was his inability to transmit warmth and a likability. He was up against one of the people who perhaps was best at that. You'd have to say a Ronald Reagan or a Bill Clinton were perhaps, you know, the number twos and the number threes. But John F. Kennedy was unlike any man in the office of president up till that time. He had sex appeal. And that was something that probably was able to work in his favor to a degree where Kennedy was an inexperienced senator. Now, in his news conference on August 24th, President Eisenhower was asked to give one example of a major idea of yours that he adopted. His reply was, and I'm quoting, if you give me a week, I might think of one. I don't remember. Now, that was a month ago, sir, and the president hasn't brought it up since. And I'm wondering, sir, if you can clarify which version is correct, the one put out by Republican campaign leaders or the one put out by President Eisenhower? Well, I would suggest, Mr. Van Oker, that uh, if you know the president, that was probably a facetious remark. Uh, I would also suggest that insofar as his statement is concerned, that I think it would be improper for the president of the United States to disclose uh, the instances in which members of his official family had made recommendations, as I have made them through the years, to him, which he has accepted or rejected. There were charges that the book that he had won a Pulitzer Prize for writing had been ghostwritten. None of these things mattered to a population who looked at this young, handsome political figure with his beautiful wife and his wonderful family, and they simply swooned. There's no other way to describe it. And the loss that Nixon suffered in 1960, amid charges of vote buying and vote fraud from the powerful Kennedy family and certain Democratic Party machines, stuck with Richard Nixon forever. He would always carry a sort of grudge against the Kennedy family ever since then and fear Bobby Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's little brother later, and the Kennedy family and the mystique that surrounded them ever since. Senator Kennedy? Well, I'll just say that the question is of experience, and the question also is uh, what our judgment is of the future and what our goals are for the United States and what ability we have to implement those goals. Abraham Lincoln came to the presidency in 1860 after a rather little-known session in the House of Representatives and after being defeated for the Senate in 58 and was a distinguished president. There is no certain road to the presidency. There are no guarantees that uh, if you take a one road or another that you will be a successful president. As the vagaries of the popular ballot resulted in one of the closest national elections since 1916, an early lead established by Kennedy dwindled as Western and rural reports came in, although a favorable trend was established in the early hours. As the Democratic Party nationally won 15 governorships and maintained its leadership in Congress and the Senate, the early Kennedy drive bogged down. Through the long hours of the night, as local districts tallied their results, the Kennedy column recorded an electoral vote frustratingly short of the 269 necessary to win. At his Hyannisport, Massachusetts residence, the Democratic candidate and his wife stoically waited out the returns, as did Vice President Nixon on the other side of the country, who even made a quick trip across the border for an election day lunch. 
At night, Mr. Nixon appeared at local GOP headquarters with his wife to the cheers of campaign workers. Almost 4 a.m., he virtually acknowledged defeat. As I look at the board here, uh, while the, there are still some results still to come in, uh, if the present trend continues, uh, if Mr. Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, will be the next president of the United States. I want Senator Kennedy to know, and I want all of you to know, that uh, certainly if this trend does continue and uh, he does become our next president, that he will have my wholehearted support. Hours that followed were frustrating and baffling as the key returns hung in the balance. Not till the middle of the next day was the victory reclenched by one of the closest margins recorded, a plurality of barely over 300,000. The unexpectedly delayed climax saw Senator Kennedy the victor with a clear margin of electoral votes. At 43 years of age, he is the youngest man ever voted into the White House and the first Catholic chief executive in the history of the nation. Can Kennedy be defeated in 64? Well, which one? Just to, uh, just to be very serious, I know, of course, you're referring to President Kennedy, and I, under no circumstances, would speak disrespectfully even of him or of his office. Aren't you kind I of just... friends? Weren't you kind of friends at one time? Oh, certainly. We came to the Congress together. I know you. And were. we were low men on the totem pole and the Labor Committee together. And he uh, remained low men until he ran for president. Now he's up and I'm down. <laughs> My little daughter said today that, you know, she's Miss Nixon, I'll be honest with you. She says, I do hope that man finds work. <laughs> when Richard Nixon lost in 1960, it was a bitter loss. In a strange way, there was a little bit of the same feeling that happened with the famous 2000 election between Al Gore and George W. Bush, where there were people telling Richard Nixon that there's vote fraud going on and you should contest what happened. You could maybe turn this thing around. It was a very close election. And Nixon, a little bit like Gore, decided that it was bad for the country to question the system, sort of, and the votes of the American people. So he didn't fight the results as they appeared initially, but he kept sort of a pain in his heart, you might say, about the loss. It stuck in his craw, and eventually he would try, and this would be one of the early times that he would rehabilitate himself politically by trying to run for office again. Now, when you have a man who's already been a congressman, who's already been a senator, who's been a vice president for two terms, and who's run for president, to consider running for the governor of a state, which in the 1962 year uh, he tried to do in California, that is such a step down, or such a perceived step down from the pinnacle of where he'd been, that a lot of people were pretty sure that this was just part of his rehabilitation, part of getting back on the road to being in a position to get his party's nomination for another run at the presidency, especially since 
He had just barely lost the first election to Kennedy. By 1962, John F. Kennedy, the love affair, if not over with the American people, certainly Kennedy had had some missteps. The Bay of Pigs, for example, had happened as part of an attempt to overthrow the Castro regime in Cuba. I mean, there were things now that Nixon could hammer Kennedy for doing while in office. And he was hoping that these things, perhaps in 1964, would allow him to have a second chance at the guy who beat him just barely in 1964. Now, no one knows if that's really what Nixon was thinking, but that was the general consensus. Otherwise, why do you run for a job that's far below the one you already had? What was not expected was that a guy running for a job so far below the ones he'd already had would lose in his attempt to get that job and lose by a pretty decent margin. When you're thinking you're going to get this as an easy win and you lose it and you're already embittered, these are the dark years of Richard Nixon's life, at least until later on in his political career, because it looks like his political career is over. It looks like the people have spoken now twice and this second time even more emphatically than the first time. Nixon has a meltdown, I guess you could call it, the morning after the election and tells the media that they won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. 16 years, ever since the Hiss case, you've had a lot of thought, a lot of thought. You, 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 you've had an opportunity to, uh, to attack me, and I think I've given as good as I've taken. I leave you gentlemen now. You will now write it. You will interpret it at your right. But as I leave you, uh, I want you to know just think how much you're going to be missed. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. And you can hear the pain in his voice. You can hear the defeat in his voice. You can hear the bitterness that he did such a good job hiding all the time. And it became, unfortunately for him, one of the most famous speeches he ever gave. The truth of the matter is, though, that there was probably a lot of people in the room who were feeling kind of sorry that that was the case because Nixon was a pretty good guy to kick around if you were a member of the California press corps during that time period. Are you writing yourself off at this point as a political candidate, as a presidential candidate at any time? Well, I've made it clear that I am not a candidate for public office. Uh, I shall not become a candidate in this year, 1964, and I certainly have no plans to become a candidate in the future. I also want to make it clear at the same time, however, I'm not writing myself off as a political leader in the United States. Nixon would, after the 62 loss, give every indication of being a man out of political office. He'd go back to doing legal work, make some money as a lawyer. He would be active in politics, but from an outsider's perspective in 1964, the famous election with Barry Goldwater being the standard bearer for the Republican Party happens. John F. Kennedy having been, of course, assassinated in 1963, his vice president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, running for his first term in office against Goldwater is able to portray Goldwater Goldwater as a radical extremist. Maybe the most famous political TV ad of all time is the one of the little girl pulling the petals from the flower and all of a sudden it turns into a nuclear countdown and you see an atomic bomb explode and the Johnson campaign essentially says if Barry Goldwater's your president, this is what you're going to get. Richard Nixon is able to avoid the absolute forest fire-like catastrophe that is Goldwater's loss in 1964 because he really wasn't a Goldwaterite. 
Ronald Reagan, a person who had been a Democrat not that long before this period, was one of the most prominent, famous Goldwater supporters, Reagan having been an actor at this particular stage beforehand in his career and the president of the Screen Actors Guild. Reagan is connected to Goldwater, and many people say that when Ronald Reagan wins political office in 1980, it really is the culmination of Barry Goldwater's campaign from 1964 finally realized. Nixon wasn't a Goldwater right, though, and it was that that helped him to survive the carnage of Goldwater's 1964 loss. August the 11th, 1965, the bloodiest riot in 40 years of America's troubled racial history begins. Los Angeles, California, the district called Watts. 34 persons die, $40 million worth of property is destroyed, almost 4,000 are arrested. The American Negro, the invisible... It is now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. Remember that Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King. There have been some demonstrations at this early hour in downtown Chicago's Grant Park. We heard a moment ago that tear gas has been used as the demonstrators are attempting to form a line of parade and march Senator Robert Francis Kennedy on the died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968, with Senator Kennedy. The 1960s, as we understand them, didn't really start happening until about 1965. The framework and the foundation is laid, of course, much earlier. But if you take a look at photographs of American people, you can see a change in fashion, style, and the entire culture that occurs sometime between 1964 and 1967. This quick change in American reality really is connected to the baby boom generation coming of age, the largest generation in American history. And this quick assault on the old American, we used to call them crew cut, upstanding, old fashioned, Protestant work ethic value of America happened so quickly, it was culturally destabilizing. Having the Vietnam War going on at the time and the divisiveness caused by that was like steroids added to an already dangerous mix. The civil rights revolutions going on and the marches in the streets was like more steroids added to the mix. The assassination of John F. Kennedy didn't help. The feeling that perhaps the situation with the Soviet Union once again could lead to an Armageddon. People forget and downplay that all the time now, but as someone who grew up in the tail end of that uh, era, it's hard to explain to people now how upsetting it was on an emotional level to have to do these drills in school, these duck and cover drills where you're an eight-year-old child and you're taking 
cover under your desk five or six times during the school year, facing away from the windows, because when the nuclear blast happens, it's going to blow the windows out. That affects people on a very visceral level and a hard-to-nail-down level. You have all of these things going on at once and a feeling like the younger generation's out of control, like there's almost a political revolution happening in the country. People are burning their draft cards instead of going to fight in Vietnam, where we were losing hundreds of guys a week in that war by this time period. The idea, by the way, of burning draft cards and not going when you were called to fight was something that the generation of Americans who had fought in the Second World War, who were the parents of the baby boomers, simply couldn't process. This was a completely destabilizing cultural change, and into this period walks Richard Nixon, a person who, better than most politicians in the 20th century, could take a look at a situation and figure out where the choke points in it were. And he figured out that people and the majority of people were so upset by the trends that they saw the country moving towards that he could make a lot of political hay setting himself up as the guy who was against the way the country was going. The young people, for example, who formed the cutting edge of what we today call the new left or the hippie movement, you know, when you look back at all the pop culture history, they seem to dominate everything. But as people from that time period never tire of explaining to me, that's because they stood out. They made news, the musicians and the actors and all these people that tend to make their ways into the magazines and newspapers seem to give us an impression that this new cultural change was much more widespread than it really was. Most people were the same people they'd been three, four, five, six years ago, and Nixon knew that. He called those people the silent majority. And this would be the group he would align himself with and sort of stand astride the course of history and yell, stop, as the old saying used to say. Nixon was aided by the fact that Lyndon Johnson dropped out of the 1968 presidential run after losing, unexpectedly, a primary. Lyndon Johnson had been so hurt by the Vietnam War, so hurt by having people outside the White House chanting things like, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? And being seen by a lot of the Democratic liberal establishment as being a Texas Democrat, that his leaving the campaign took away the biggest opponent Nixon would have to face, and certainly the most savvy politician. Lyndon Johnson was a sneaky, dangerous, exquisitely talented politician. You know, someone who was every bit Nixon's equal. To not have to deal with him, to be looking at facing a Hubert Humphrey, for example, was the kind of thing that Nixon could only dream about. He couldn't have in his wildest dreams had seen LBJ leaving the race. He also was going to have to face, it looked like, another Kennedy, somebody who was probably even more formidable than John F. Kennedy in terms of policy and actual bedrock core of political beliefs with Robert F. Kennedy, and then to have Robert die in an assassination in 1968 once again seemed to almost be providential for Nixon in terms of his chances because he ended up facing, in the 68 election, somebody with as little personal charisma as he had, Hubert Humphrey. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This turned into a referendum on things like the direction the Vietnam War was heading in, the anti-war riots, the pace and tone of the civil rights movement. People like Martin Luther King, who are uh, lionized and deified now, that was seen by a lot of the country as a rabble-rouser and a potential communist. These are all the people that Nixon was able to appeal to and call for things like law and order, to align himself with the silent majority and famously say things like, you know, if he was square, well, that's how he wanted to be. So in 68, Nixon wins the election and also, by the way, says he has a plan to end the Vietnam War, his famous secret plan to end the Vietnam War. Very similar, by the way, to the way Dwight Eisenhower was seen by the American public in 1952 as being a guy who could step in and stop the Korean War. Nixon would have known about that being Eisenhower's running mate. Nixon pulled the same sort of stunt in 68, basically saying, you know, we've had a Democrat in office get us into this war. We've seen how he's managed it. Put me in office. I have a secret plan to end the war. When the strongest nation in the world can be tied down for four years in a war in Vietnam with no end in sight, when the richest nation in the world can't manage its own economy, 
when the nation with the greatest tradition of the rule of law is plagued by unprecedented lawlessness, when a nation has been known for a century for equality of opportunity is torn by unprecedented racial violence, and when the President of the United States cannot travel abroad or to any major city at home without fear of a hostile demonstration, then it's time for new leadership for the United States of America. The 26th electoral votes in Illinois. Richard Nixon goes over the top with 287 electoral votes. He needed 270 to win, and that seems to be the 1968 election. And he is beaming, Pat Nixon is beaming. One can't help but think back to 1960 when a tearful Pat Nixon was choking back the emotions. It was a totally different scene, of course, then. Here is possibly one of the most fantastic political comebacks in American history. Nixon's the one. You, Richard Milhouse Nixon, do solemnly swear. I, Richard Milhouse Nixon, do solemnly swear. That you will faithfully execute the office. That I will faithfully execute the office. Of President of the United States. Of President of the United States. And will, to the best of your ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. report to the nation on Vietnam, I announced the decision to withdraw an additional 150,000 Americans from Vietnam over the next year. I said then that I was making that decision despite our concern over increased enemy activity in Laos, in Cambodia, and in South Vietnam. And at that time, I warned that if I concluded that increased enemy activity in any of these areas endangered the lives of Americans remaining in Vietnam, I would not hesitate to take strong and effective measures to deal with that situation. Richard Nixon winning the election in 1968, with one of his major pledges being to get peace with honor, as he called it in Vietnam, and who supposedly had a secret plan for ending the war, would end up escalating the war in some respects as part of his plan to finish it. Nixon would step up things like bombing campaigns, he would step up attacks over the border into Cambodia and Laos as a way to attack sanctuaries that the communist North Vietnamese were using, uh, using the international borders to create safe havens for themselves. Nixon would bomb the North Vietnamese to the negotiating table, and then when they would prove sometimes a little unwilling to bend on certain issues, he would try to bomb them back to the negotiating table. This is when Henry Kissinger really comes into his own as one of the great negotiators in U.S. history, and the amount of emphasis on peace talks in Paris that went on and on and on, fighting over hundreds of individual issues and amendments to proposed agreements to end the war. It takes literally years, and there will be times when both sides will pull away from the negotiations, and Nixon will, at one point, he mines Haiphong Harbor, which creates an international incident with the USSR. 
these sorts of things will be an endless attempt to get a deal that will preserve, which is what Nixon was after, the integrity of South Vietnam. South Vietnam was a U.S. ally, and when the U.S. looked at ending that war, the main condition that they wanted in place was that our ally didn't pay the price for the U.S. deciding to leave. So the whole point was to leave a regime in South Vietnam that was capable of defending itself and remaining viable. Many times during the conversations, the South Vietnamese would worry that they were being sold out by the United States in, in their attempt to simply wash their hands of the whole conflict. Nixon's opening of China and diplomatic overtures to the Soviet Union were both seen as ways to impact the very backers of the North Vietnamese that kind of helped keep that war going. There was a pervasive view at the time that the North Vietnamese were to some degree controlled by either or both the Soviet Union and Red China. And when Nixon went and began negotiating with both those entities, this was part of his overall plan to influence the Vietnamese by negotiating directly through their backers. I mean, the Soviet Union was seen almost as a puppet master for the North Vietnamese regime. If you could begin to negotiate and work on the tension levels with the Soviet Union, it was seen as something that was going to help Nixon's eventual peace efforts. The major bombing campaigns that Nixon launched in 1970, the incursions into places like Cambodia and Laos, all prompted huge amounts of protests in the United States against Richard Nixon. Nixon himself saw these as ways to bomb the North Vietnamese back to the negotiating table. And one of the more interesting approaches that Richard Nixon took was something he called his madman theory. This idea that he would have Henry Kissinger portray him to the North Vietnamese that were on the other side of the negotiating table as crazy, as not rational, as someone who was so concerned with communism that it unhinged him and that you just couldn't trust that he would act in a rational fashion, that he might launch nuclear weapons unexpectedly at the wrong moment if the peace talks failed. The madman theory goes back, you know, all the way to people like Machiavelli or even the ancient Romans would talk about these ideas that sometimes it might be valuable to have your opponent not be able to trust you to act sanely in every situation. And the fact that Nixon was willing to use something like that as part of the peace negotiations is fascinating. He even put the U.S. nuclear forces on alert at one point as a way to sort of send a message that he just might be losing it, that he knew would be transmitted back to the North Vietnamese and maybe influence their thinking that they might not be dealing with a totally rational individual in the White House. We believe that peace is at hand. We believe that a, an agreement is within sight based on the May 8th uh, proposals of the President and some adaptations of our January 25th proposal, which is just to all parties. It is inevitable that in a war of such complexity that there should be uh, occasional difficulties in reaching a final solution. But we believe that by far the longest part of the road has been traversed. Richard Nixon had to have 
very superior gifts in the areas that he was gifted because he had so many drawbacks as a politician. He was not likable. He was not warm. The whole idea of human warmth and Nixon don't go together very well. So how does a politician overcome that? Nixon's whole life is a combination of hard work. If you go back and look at the man's childhood, he is one of the hardest working, not just presidents, but people you will ever find. And then to combine that with a certain ability to seize the moment, and that's a phrase Nixon used to use, he entitled one of his books, Seize the Moment, where he could simply do something unexpected and very bold. He's a very conservative, make very slow, deliberate moves, and then at just the time you don't expect it, launch some endeavor that just seems both out of character and game-changing. A perfect example is his so-called opening of China in the early 1970s, which he started working on in the late 1960s. And there's a saying in the United States that only Nixon could go to China. What that saying means is only a person who had spent their entire career making anti-communism one of the things that they were perhaps known for more than anything else could be the one to reach out to a communist regime and not be accused of being a communist sympathizer when they did it. Richard Nixon completely upset the international apple cart when he reached out to China because what this did was exacerbate a disagreement between two countries that Americans in the 1960s had almost considered to be one communist bloc, the Soviet Union and what was known then as Red China. There was a feeling that the communists in the Soviet Union controlled Red China and then when it seemed as though Mao and the Chinese were becoming estranged from Moscow, Nixon just leapt at the opportunity to basically detach them. And it scared the Soviets so much that Nixon might be coming to a sort of private agreement with the Chinese that all of a sudden the Soviets became much more tractable, much more willing to negotiate things like arms limitation treaties and what would eventually become known as detente. This was the kind of move that had a Democrat made the move, people like Richard Nixon would have savaged them for giving in to communists and caving to communist doctrine and maybe even, you know, having their administration riddled with communist sympathizers and spies and moles. And so it's really a quite a brilliant move on Nixon's part. And those are the sorts of things that seem to compensate for all of his weaknesses in politics and the fact that he wasn't much of a baby kisser, handshaker, glad-hander politician, but occasionally he could do these kind of things that had he not actually fallen from power the way he did, he would be remembered as quite a visionary for doing. I have requested this television time tonight to announce a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world. As I have pointed out on a number of occasions over the past three years, there can be no stable and enduring peace without the participation of the People's Republic of China and it's 750 million people. That is why I have undertaken initiatives in several areas to open the door for more normal relations between our two countries. In pursuance of that goal, I sent Dr. Kissinger to Peking during his recent world tour for the purpose of having talks with Premier Zhou Enlai. The announcement I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Peking 
and in the United States. Premier Cho Enlai and Dr. Henry Kissinger, President Nixon's assistant for national security affairs, held talks in Peking from July 9 to 11, 1971. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to summarize for you the meeting that I have just had with bipartisan leaders. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. I shall ask not simply for more new programs in the old framework. I shall ask to change the framework of government itself, to reform the entire structure of American government so we can make it again fully responsive to the needs and the wishes of the American people. Third great goal is to continue the effort so dramatically begun last year to restore and enhance our natural environment. We've turned the corner on drug addiction in the United States. Drug addiction in the United States is under control. President Nixon has said that this will be health year, the year to tackle what he's called the massive crisis of spiraling costs and overstrained medical resources. Today, the president pitted a low-key, low-budget plan to expand private insurance coverage against the more drastic proposals in Congress paced by the labor-supported Kennedy plan for cradle-to-grave federal health insurance for all Americans. I am proposing today a new national health strategy. It helps more people pay for care, but it also expands the supply of health services and makes them more efficient. It emphasizes keeping people well, not just making people well. The most important is welfare reform. The present welfare system has become a monstrous, consuming outrage. An outrage against the community, against the taxpayer, and particularly against the children it's supposed to help. The second great goal is to achieve what Americans have not enjoyed since 1957, full prosperity in peacetime. I have asked for this radio and television time for the purpose of announcing that we today have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia. The following statement is being issued at this moment in Washington and Hanoi. At 12.30 Paris time today, January 23, 1973, the agreement on ending the war and restoring peace in Vietnam was initialed by Dr. Henry Kissinger on behalf of the United States and Special Advisor Lee Duc Tho on behalf of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. The ceasefire will take effect at 2400 Greenwich Mean Time, January 27, 1973. The United States and the Democratic Republic of Vietnam express the hope that this agreement will ensure stable peace in Vietnam and contribute to the preservation of lasting peace in Indochina and Southeast Asia. That concludes the formal statement. Throughout the years of negotiations, we have insisted on peace with honor. In my addresses to the nation, from this room of January 25th and May 8th, I set forth the goals that we considered essential for peace with honor. This 92nd Congress has a chance to be recorded as the greatest Congress in America's history. In these troubled years just past, America has been going through a long nightmare of war and division of crime and inflation. Even more deeply, we have gone through a long, dark night of the American spirit. But now that night is ending. Now we must let our spirits soar again. Now we are ready for the lift of a driving dream. The people of this nation are eager to get on with the quest for new greatness. They see challenges and they're prepared to meet those challenges. It is for us here to open the doors that will set free again the real greatness of this nation.
the genius of the American people. How shall we meet this challenge? How can we truly open the doors and set free the full genius of our people? The way in which the 92nd Congress answers these questions will determine its place in history. But more importantly, it can determine this nation's place in history as we enter the third century of our independence. Get past the people, get past the hitmen! Well, I have no doubt that President Nixon can be uh, defeated. Four years ago, I proudly accepted your nomination for President of the United States. I think the American people are looking for a new type of leadership. With your help tonight, I again proudly accept your nomination From for NBC President News, of the United election States. headquarters in New York, this is NBC Nightly News, Tuesday, November 7th. With 1% of the vote in now, Mr. Nixon leading better than 2 to 1. This pattern that you see on your screen now, 65% for the president, 34% for McGovern, although it's very early in the evening, is close to what some of the polls were showing and some of the polls were indicating in various states. President and Mrs. Nixon voted today in San Clemente, California. They were applauded by a small crowd as they drove up to the Concordia Elementary School, two blocks from the Western White. The White House already has spread the word they expect to carry 48 states, with only Massachusetts and West Virginia in doubt. There was a chance to chat with some of the people who will be at this party tonight, and one of them told me that Weeks before, they had already ruled out any possibility of ever losing this election. So they really felt it was over before it started. This is Tom Pettit, NBC News at Republican headquarters in Washington. We've been looking at some of the returns from our specially chosen precincts. Precincts that will tell us how different kinds of voters are voting. It is now clear that Richard Nixon is the winner of this election. If what we have learned so far from the votes already cast continues to happen as the polls close across the country, the president will be re-elected in a landslide. That's what our trend now indicates, the president re-elected by a landslide. In 1972, Richard Nixon was riding perhaps the high watermark of his political career. He had been named Times Man of the Year in 1971. He shared that honor again in 1972 with his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. So here's a guy who has been president of the United States for a couple of years. He's been a congressman. He's been a senator. He's been a high-ranking U.S. official now for a long time. He's been a man of the year for the most prestigious magazine in the country. He's co-man of the year the next year. He's began the process of opening up China. He's begun the process of winding down the Vietnam War. He has opened the doors to what was known later as detente and arms agreements with the Soviet Union. This is a person who appears to be one of the most effective presidents of the 20th century. And in 1972, during the campaign, he's running against a representative of a Democratic Party that is in complete disarray. The Democratic Party has been at war amongst itself between the people left over from the New Deal wing of the party, going all the way back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and what was known as the New Left, what people today might look back on as the counterculture, the hippie, the very peace-oriented left, which didn't have a huge following nationally. 
So when he crushed in one of the biggest landslides in U.S. history, uh, Democratic nominee George McGovern, this was seen as an extremely powerful, effective, savvy U.S. president crushing a fringe candidate, essentially. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Chief Justice, Senator Cook, Mrs. Eisenhower, and my fellow citizens of this great and good country we share together. When we met here four years ago, America was bleak in spirit, depressed by the prospect of seemingly endless war abroad and of destructive conflict at home. As we meet here today, we stand on the threshold of a new era of peace in the world. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards employed by the Watergate complex. At first, the police found nothing. Then they spied five men crouching behind some desks. Neither president, obviously, or anybody in the White House or anybody in authority in any of the committees working for the re-election of the president have any responsibility for it. Watergate is an apartment complex in Washington, D.C., and that's oftentimes what a lot of people don't recall because the name has become synonymous with the scandal that ended up bringing down the Nixon presidency. But the reason the Watergate was the center of attention is because that's where the Democratic Party headquarters for the 1972 elections were located, and that's where the burglary attempt by people working for the re-election of President Nixon happened. The burglars, led by people like G. Gordon Liddy, were caught. And that's how things began to spiral out of control. Because once those burglars were caught, and it began to be tied to the re-election of President Nixon, a bunch of dominoes began to fall, including the attempts by President Nixon to cover up both the fact that the burglary was connected to his re-election campaign and to cover up whether or not he had any knowledge of this. And this becomes the original case where people often say today that the cover-up was worse than the crime. But nowadays, when people talk about Watergate, they're talking about more than just the burglary itself. They often use the term to encompass a bunch of things that Nixon was involved in. He was a master at using the various arms of government to go after political opponents, to give himself an edge in elections. It's a little bit ironic, but Nixon, who was crazy about plugging leaks, so crazy that he had a group in his White House known as the Plumbers, whose job it was to keep information he didn't want leaking to the media from leaking to the media. Nixon himself was a great leaker back in his day, so he knew all about it. And that's part of the activities that's often wrapped up into this whole idea of Watergate, including the idea that there was a secret White House taping system that Nixon used to tape phone calls and conversations in the White House. This hour, a select committee of the United States Senate is about to begin public hearings on something called Watergate. One year ago today, Watergate was just an address, a rather fancy, expensive address in this capital city, 
But now it has come to symbolize much more. The word crisis is perhaps too mild to apply to Watergate. President Nixon's White House has been shaken. Indeed, the entire executive branch of the government has been jolted by the continuing accusations and uh, revelations. Most of them, it uh, must be kept in mind, not yet proved. Seven men, only seven men, have been convicted for their part in the burglary. We see you now. We see now Senator Sam Irvin, who is the chairman of the uh, select committee engaging in some banter there with the photographers who are clustered all about him. Senator Irvin will be the man wielding the gavel during these uh, hearings, and he is about to do that right now. We are beginning these hearings today in an atmosphere of utmost gravity. The questions that have been raised in the wake of the June 17th break-in strike at the very undergirding of our dem democracy. If the many allegations made to this date are true, then the burglars who broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate were in effect breaking into the home of every citizen of the United States. And if these allegations proved to be true, what they were seeking to steal was not the jewels, money, or other property of American citizens, but something much more valuable, their most precious heritage, the right to vote in a free election. Well, the, the hows and whys are, are when the burglars themselves were caught. For all we know, there may have been other things that the Nixon administration was involved in that no one ever finds out about. I mean, there were talks before the Watergate burglary happened of doing things like firebombing the Brookings Institution and stuff like that, of going in and stealing the uh, records from a vice presidential hopeful's psychiatrist. I mean, those kind of dirty tricks. What blows Watergate up so that it becomes a public issue is the fact that the burglars are caught in the act and everything begins to start pointing towards the White House as having something to do with it. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I have never heard or seen such outrageous, vicious, distorted reporting in 27 years of public life. I'm not blaming anybody for that. Perhaps what happened is that what we did brought it about. And therefore, uh, the media decided that they would have to take that particular line. But when people are pounded night after night with that kind of frantic, hysterical reporting, it naturally shakes their confidence. And yet, don't get the impression that you arouse my anger. One can only be angry with those he respects. <laughs> For all we know, there were other presidents and other presidential hopefuls in the past who did things like this. The old line when I was growing up was that Nixon just got caught. It was people like G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt and these people who were reportedly willing to do anything for the president. Both of those people were reportedly willing to assassinate using a motor vehicle at one point, columnist Jack Anderson, who was giving the administration so much trouble at one point. So these were die-hard, do-anything-for-Nixon guys, and when they got caught in the burglary, all of a sudden the whole thing began to unravel, and the question for Richard Nixon became, what did he know, and when did he know it? Political pressure from the White House was conveyed to me in January 1973, by John Caulfield to remain silent, 
take executive clemency by going off to prison quietly. And I was told that while there, I would receive financial aid and later rehabilitation and a job. My participation in the Watergate operation on my part, for whatever reasons I may have had at the time, whatever rationale I may have had at the time, was an error, was a mistake, and a very grave mistake, which I regret. The president told me I'd done a good job and he appreciated how difficult a task it had been. And the president was pleased that the case had stopped with Liddy. I responded that I could not take credit because others had done much more difficult things than I had done. As the president discussed the, the present status of the situation, I told him that all I'd been able to do was to contain the case and assist in keeping it out of the White House. I also told him that there was a long way to go before this matter would end and that certainly, I certainly could make no assurances that the day would not come when this matter would not start to unravel. What I had hoped to do in this conversation was to have the president tell me we had to end the matter now. Accordingly, I gave considerable thought to how I would present this situation to the president and try to make as dramatic a presentation as I could to tell him how serious I thought the situation was that the cover-up continue. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency, and that if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. I also told him that it was important that this cancer be removed immediately because it was growing more deadly every day. The central question at this point is simply put, what did the president know and when did he know it? When do you think the president found out about Watergate and the cover-up? I haven't any idea, Senator. There was never this moment where everything tumbled and Nixon admitted to everything. In fact, years after his resignation, he was still denying some of this stuff to people like talk show host David Frost. The Nixon administration essentially drowned in drips that happened over time. And the president would admit to something based on new information that had come out, and then new information would come out and force him to admit even more. There was never this moment where the jig was up. Unless you want to talk about the, the moment that the tapes were ruled by the court that they were releasable because Nixon had tried, you know, people have wondered for a long time why Nixon didn't just destroy the tapes that had been made secretly in the White House because these tapes were originally intended by Nixon to help cement his legacy. He was going to use them to write his memoirs. These were going to be the proof of what an amazing presidency he'd had. So he was loath to get rid of them because it was a big deal that he had them in the first place. The problem was is that once the taping system became public knowledge, it was completely understood that the tapes would answer so many of the questions that the subordinates to Richard Nixon and Richard Nixon himself were avoiding or were loath to answer. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices, yes sir. When were those devices? placed in the Oval Office? Approximately the summer of 1970. I cannot begin to recall the precise date. My guess, Mr. Thompson, is that the installation was made between, and this is a very rough guess, April or May of 1970 and perhaps the end of the summer or early fall 1970.
you aware of any devices that were installed in the executive office building office of the president? Yes, sir, at that time. This is a rather remarkable letter about the tapes. If you notice, the president says he's heard the tapes, or some of them, and they sustain his position. But he says he's not going to let anybody else hear them for fear they might draw a different conclusion. There were court battles over whether or not the tapes could be subpoenaed, whether or not they could be exposed. Good evening. There are reports tonight that President Nixon has ordered Attorney General Elliot Richardson to fire the special Watergate prosecutor Archibald Cox. Cox opposes President Nixon's plan to release summaries of the presidential tapes in the Watergate case. Cox said at a news conference today he'll continue his court efforts to get the tapes, despite the president's orders that he give up that court fight. And eventually, when Nixon was compelled by the courts to release the tapes, they found an 18-minute gap in the tapes where whatever had been talked about was erased. And Nixon's personal secretary claimed that it was accidentally done by her, but it's widely believed that the missing material is exactly the sort of smoking gun that everybody was looking for and that Nixon denied existed. So there never was this period in Watergate's history where he came clean. It was a continual cavalcade of new information spilling forward and the Nixon administration having to once again alter their public approach and the public rationale for what happened and when it happened is his poor press secretary was continually having to revamp his story over and over again as new information came to light good evening i have asked for this time tonight in order to announce my answer to the house judiciary committee subpoena for additional watergate tapes and to tell you something about the actions i shall be taking tomorrow about what i hope they will mean to you and about the very difficult choices that were presented to me. These actions will at last, once and for all, show that what I knew and what I did with regard to the Watergate break-in and cover-up were just as I have described them to you from the very beginning. I've spent many hours during the past few weeks thinking about what I would say to the American people if I were to reach the decision I shall announce tonight. And so my words have not been lightly chosen. I can assure you, they are deeply felt. It was almost two years ago, in June 1972, that five men broke into the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington. It turned out that they were connected with my re-election. Well, you have to remember that in the United States before this era, there had only been one president in our history impeached. Andrew Johnson, who had been the vice president for Abraham Lincoln, and who got that job upon Lincoln's assassination. And it was widely believed that there were circumstances that led to Johnson's impeachment that were above and beyond the normal ones. We were just in the post-Civil War era and all that. The South was very angry at the Union. There were problems with Reconstruction. To suggest that a president in modern times like Richard Nixon could actually be impeached was something Americans couldn't even believe. This is not something that in any sort of a modern sense people even thought possible. Sometimes when a constitutional provision is not applied for a very long time, people almost wonder whether it's even applicable anymore. 
I remember being in the fourth grade and having teachers wheel in television sets so we could watch the Watergate hearings. Now, the Watergate hearings are extremely adult things. It would be the equivalent of watching C-SPAN or some other, you know, the, the parliament meeting in session in Britain today. You wouldn't expect young kids to be either interested in something like that or really even able to comprehend what it was they were seeing. But this was seen as so historic that we were all compelled day after day after day in the fourth grade to view these hearings as they unfolded. There has never been anything like this during my lifetime, politically speaking. And watching the newspapers every day in that era and seeing the headlines day after day of new things being found out and new information being uncovered was enough to make a whole new generation of Americans fall in love with the idea of investigative journalism. And I think it also points to the fact that back in those times when you only had limited media outlets, really three broadcast networks, really a few major US newspapers, it was amazing how much they could focus a nation's attention on an issue when they all decided to make that issue a big deal. Watergate was the lead story on most newscasts throughout the entire hearings, most evenings. And it put this subject front and center and on the lips of Americans in a way that I'm not sure any subject has been talked about or focused upon with that degree of intensity since. Good evening from the U.S. Capitol in Washington, where today the House of Representatives began its formal inquiry into the impeachment of President Nixon. So today, the 9th of May, 1974, will go down in the history books. One year and 11 months after the Republican burglars were caught in the Watergate a couple of miles from here, the impeachment inquiry got underway. With opening statements from committee chairman Peter Rodino of New Jersey and Edward Hutchinson of Michigan, the ranking Republican. Here's how it went. The meeting will come to order. Resolve that the committee on the judiciary is authorized and directed to investigate fully and completely whether sufficient grounds exist for the House of Representatives to exercise its constitutional power to impeach Richard M. Nixon, President of the United States of America. We understand our high constitutional responsibility. We will faithfully live up to it. James Madison again at the Constitutional Convention. A president is impeachable if he attempts to subvert the Constitution. The Constitution charges the president with the task of taking care that the laws be faithfully executed. And yet, the president has counseled his aides to commit perjury, willfully disregard the secrecy of grand jury proceedings, conceal surreptitious entry, attempt to compromise a federal judge while publicly displaying its cooperation with the processes of criminal justice. A president is impeachable if he attempts to subvert the Constitution. If the impeachment provision in the Constitution of the United States will not reach the offenses charged here, then perhaps that 18th century Constitution should be abandoned to a 20th century paper shredder. Has the president committed offenses? planned and directed and acquiesced in a, con in a course of conduct which the Constitution will not tolerate? That's the question. We know that. We know the question. We should now forthwith proceed to answer the question.
it is reason and not passion which must guide our deliberations, guide our debate, and guide our decision. From CBS News headquarters in Washington, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. President Nixon reportedly will announce his resignation tonight, and Vice President Ford will become the nation's 38th president tomorrow. That word comes unofficially from aides and associates of both men, but not from the two men themselves. And the swiftly moving events of this busy day in Washington tend to confirm it. Those events included a late morning White House meeting between the President and the Vice President, Ford's cancellation of a planned trip to the West Coast in Hawaii, the President's scheduling of a televised address to the nation at 9 o'clock tonight Eastern Daylight Time, and his invitation to congressional leaders of both parties to meet with him before that address. We'll return in a minute with the detailed reports. Good evening. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office where so many decisions have been made that shape the history of this nation. Each time I have done so to discuss with you some matter that I believe affected the national interest. In all the decisions I have made in my public life, I have always tried to do what was best for the nation. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere to make every possible effort to complete the term of office. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. As long as there was such a base, I felt strongly that it was necessary to see the constitutional process through to its conclusion, that to do otherwise would be unfaithful to the spirit of that deliberately difficult process and a dangerously destabilizing precedent for the future. But with the disappearance of that base, I now believe that the constitutional purpose has been served and there is no longer a need for the process to be prolonged. I would have preferred to carry through to the finish whatever the personal agony it would have involved. And my family unanimously urged me to do so. But the interests of the nation must always come before any personal considerations. From the discussions I have had with congressional and other leaders, I have concluded that because of the Watergate matter, I might not have the support of the Congress that I would consider necessary to back the very difficult decisions and carry out the duties of this office in the way the interests of the nation will require. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress, particularly at this time with problems we face at home and abroad, to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issue of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. 
Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. I have learned already in this office that the difficult decisions always come to this desk. As we are a nation under God, so I am sworn to uphold our laws, and I have sought such guidance and searched my own conscience with special diligence to determine the right thing for me to do with respect to my predecessor in this place, Richard Nixon, and his loyal wife and family. Theirs is an American tragedy. It could go on and on and on, or someone must write the end to it. I have concluded that only I can do that. And if I can, I must. The Gerald Ford pardon was, was an extra big deal because Gerald Ford had not been the vice president for very long. Richard Nixon's vice president before Gerald Ford was a guy named Spiro Agnew. Spiro Agnew, if anything, was Nixon's match for underhanded deeds. In fact, Spiro Agnew was straight up dishonest. I mean, he got in trouble for all sorts of schemes and corruption and was forced to leave office. When Nixon appointed Ford, it was already clear that Nixon might be in some political trouble and he might depend on a vice president to bail him out. There have always been rumors that one of the things Ford was picked for was because he was seen as somebody who, if Nixon got in terrible trouble, would throw him, you know, a lifeline. I'm not sure whether that's true or not, but the fact that Ford pardons Nixon and prevents him from being prosecuted any further, essentially ends the affair with the swipe of a pen has led people ever since to wonder what the alternative might have been. If, if Ford hadn't pardoned Nixon, that whole process would have continued with Nixon out of the White House and unable to use the powers of the presidency to help defend himself. Ford claimed that he did it because the country had to heal, that America was involved in a tragedy, the bringing down of a president, and that this could just go on and on and on unless somebody ended it. And he ended it. And people have wondered ever since whether Richard Nixon got less than he deserved because his hand-picked successor essentially ended the investigations into his affairs. There's a lot of people, by the way, conspiratorial-minded folks, who think there might have been a lot more to Watergate than we ever found out. But Ford's pardon assured that the investigations and Nixon being questioned and held up for scrutiny ended with Ford's pardon. Nixon is really... I think, and I'm far from the first person to say this, almost a figure out of Greek tragedy. He's a novelist's dream come true, and when you look at his story, I mean, I'm not into psychoanalyzing historical figures, but Nixon is a fascinating study of someone who was really brilliant. I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that Nixon is probably the most intellectually gifted president we've had since Richard Nixon, maybe with Bill Clinton coming a close second. The fact that he had all of these ingrain faults, and Nixon would probably say that he was no worse in terms of faults than a guy like his predecessor, Lyndon Johnson. Nixon was just someone who, in his mind, was always persecuted by the press. He was never given the same benefits of the doubt that people like John F. Kennedy was given. Nixon had a persecution complex. 
And because of that, it caused him to sometimes overcompensate. I think one of the great ironies of Nixon's career was that the main reason the Watergate scandal happened was because Nixon was worried about his reelection chances. He was breaking into the Democratic Party headquarters to try to figure out what their strategies and plans were so that he could compensate for them. And yet, when Nixon won that election in 1972, it was one of the biggest landslides in U.S. history. Richard Nixon didn't need to do the Watergate break-in. He didn't need to have any edge on his opponents at all. Had he just had enough confidence in himself and his own situation, he could have sat back cruised to victory in 1972 and have an extremely different legacy today. Let's remember Richard Nixon was Time's Man of the Year in 1971. He shared that honor again the very next year with his Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. This is a person who was at the top of his career, at the top of his game, when the Watergate story broke. Had Nixon just had enough self-confidence to realize he was going to win that election going away, we would have a completely different view of him today. In fact, probably when you look at his opening of China, when you look at detente with the Soviet Union, when you look at him extricating U.S. forces from the Vietnam War, when you look at his creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, there are a lot of people who might be able to make the case that Richard Nixon would be considered a very good president today had it not been for Watergate. And the fact that Watergate wasn't necessary at all is part of the great irony of Richard Nixon's career. I think Nixon is part of a Republican Party that doesn't exist anymore. He was a moderate in so many ways. He was considered to be extreme by the members of the young new left in his era. But if you brought Nixon out of a time capsule and dropped him down in the American political scene today, he would be almost unclassifiable. In fact, in some ways, in some aspects of his career, he might even be more liberal than mainstream Democrats in U.S. political life right now. So I think the real tragedy of Richard Nixon was his own insecurities got the best of him and brought a guy who was pretty gifted down to a level of legacy that makes him out to be one of the worst presidents in the 20th century. And he's a guy with far too many gifts really to deserve such a, a title. And that's kind of what makes him a tragic figure in sort of the ancient Greek mold. A Greek playwright would love to play around with Richard Nixon as a character in some drama. And it makes him sort of a almost figure to be pitied, I think. And people would laugh at that because he was such a hated figure in his era. But I bet historians down the road, given the fact that the American political system has become so much more corrupt after Richard Nixon, so much more accustomed to the dirty tricks that Nixon got in trouble for, I think Nixon doesn't look as nasty when we look at him from modern times now as he did during an America that was more idealistic about politics than we are now. Nixon used to say he was just a hardball politician. Now looking back on it with what we've known since Richard Nixon, he kinda does look like a hardball politician. To Americans of that time period, he looked borderline evil. I think if you compare Nixon to other presidents, he doesn't appear that bad of a guy. I certainly admire the fact that he was a person who overcame a ton. He was one of those figures, you know, I mean, he really, he was born with nothing. He was a kid that had all kinds of strikes against him and through sheer hard work and dogged determination overcame those circumstances. I mean, he really is a kind of a success story. The problem is, is that as a figure, he is so 
dislikable that it's hard to really celebrate his success story. And he ends up sometimes taking down other people as part of his dogged determination for success that I think once again makes him and his achievements less admirable than they otherwise might be. Traditionally, the US political parties will hit course changes from time to time. George McGovern's nomination by the Democrats in 1972 is a huge break from the direction the Democratic Party had traditionally been taking since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And the 1968 Democratic National Convention, where you had those riots in the streets of Chicago, are an example of that split while it's happening. And then in 1972, the Democrats actually put forth a nominee for president that is a result of that split that's been going on. The Republicans have a similar dynamic in place. In 1964, Barry Goldwater is the presidential nominee, and he is perceived by many Americans, and he's certainly painted this way by his political opponents, to be an extremist. He is the wing of the Republican Party that is not the establishment folks. They even have a name, the Goldwater-Reagan types, always called those other Republicans Rockefeller Republicans, sort of a denigration-minded term. When Richard Nixon opens the doors to China and detente with the Soviet Union, many conservative, really truly Goldwater-like conservative Republicans were outraged. They didn't believe you compromised with communism. That was one of the many issues that divided the Republican Party. When Nixon resigns in 1974, it leaves the party in an extremely weakened condition. One of the reasons Ford lost in 76 was the legacy of Watergate and his pardoning of Richard Nixon. 76, though, sees the resurgence of the Goldwater wing of the party, embodied by former television actor and head of the Screen Actors Guild, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was also the governor of California. And as a Californian myself, and, and who had parents who were in Ronald Reagan's union, Reagan was thought of by people in his home state of California as a kook who could never win election. He was very much thought of in the same way that Barry Goldwater had been seen. So when Reagan wins in 1980, it is a shock to people who figured that one, this is the non-credible wing of the Republican Party, and two, if the non-credible wing of the Republican Party ever put forward another presidential candidate, that that candidate would meet the same sort of end that Barry Goldwater met. For Ronald Reagan to actually be victorious, many people have called that, you know, the true victory of Barry Goldwater. Barry Goldwater won the 1964 election. He just didn't win it until 1980. He got to win it with another guy who represented him, and that was Ronald Reagan. I let down my friends. I let down the country. I let down our system of government, dreams of all those young people that ought to get into government but will think it's all too corrupt and the rest. Most of all, I let down an opportunity that I would have had for two and a half more years to proceed on great projects and programs for building a lasting peace, which was been my dream, as you know, from our first interview in 1968, before I had any thought I might even win that year. I didn't tell you I didn't think I might win, but I wasn't sure. Yep, I, I, I let the American people down, and I have to carry that burden with me for the rest of my life.
fellow Americans, I come before you tonight as a candidate for the vice president. Just think how much you're going to be messy. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Nixon's the one. Hello, I'm Royfield Brown and welcome to 10 American Presidents, a podcast that has been almost two years in the making. Yes, you've heard that right, it's almost taken me two years from the initial idea, with me speaking to the incomparable Dan Carlin to actually get in the show of Nixon's political life up. So apologies to Dan and you if you enjoyed the show or the delayed wait. I've been fascinated by American life and politics for almost 20 years now, since my first visit to the States in 1996. It's only when I got here that I realised and appreciated the vastness of the country and started to have a true understanding of powerful energy that you can get from speaking to and being around Americans. So, arguably, this broadcast is 20 years in the gestation. If you are aware of my first podcast, How Jamaica Conquered the World, the format of 10 American presidents should not come as too much of a surprise. I like to weave narrative with audio clips and music into my shows. However, with this project, I will be doing things a little differently. There will be at least nine other shows in the series and I invite you, the listener, to add your thoughts and recollections on each president to the series by joining our Facebook group. So go onto Facebook and the group is entitled 10 American Presidents where you can be told of the subject of the next show before it actually goes live and where you'll be able to add your own content to that show. The website is 10, that is the number 10, USP.com you can also follow the series on Twitter, where we are at number 10 USAP. And you can also follow me personally on Twitter, where I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. And of course, please, please, please write that review for us on iTunes. As most of you will know, it's the main way for us podcasters to get new listeners to our show, so please don't hold back. The last thing to say is that there is no fit schedule for when these shows will actually go out. As each show will have at least one expert narrator and it takes so long to edit, you're going to have to bear with me as to when these shows will appear. All I can say is that I promise you, you won't have to wait two years for the next episode. See you all next time. Mr. Pop. That the only thing we have to fear is... Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.